I had a good time all day today thinking about what I would talk about and uh, beginning to, in advance of uh, even deciding, thinking, oh, there isn't enough time, there are so many good things to say, or watching my mind become discontented in advance of what was happening with the worry that it wouldn't be enough time. I was watching, just, it's so... um, it's so interesting to have a mind, you know, that out of nothing it can make a fret or a worry or a discontent. So I was thinking about talking about uh, starting from the calendar place of we are uh, on Monday of the fifth week of Lent. We are on day five of the month of Nisan, where day 15 will be the full moon and therefore Passover. We have just started in the uh, cycle of Torah readings, the book of Leviticus, as of last Saturday. So beginning to have instructions about how to build, uh, how to build uh, the tabernacle, and uh, which I always like to think about in terms of how to build the inner tabernacle. And I looked this morning in the... Uh, Catholic lectionary that sets the three-year reading cycle for many Christian churches, and I found uh, the reading for today was from the book of Daniel, and the particular reading was about sticking to the truth. I said, oh, I could do that. I could talk about how this practice of mindfulness is really a steadfast uh, attempt to acknowledge the truth as a way of dispelling confusion. And then I noticed that the psalm for today in that same um, in that same prescription book of Daniel and the psalm for today is Psalm 23 and since I thought oh everybody's familiar with 23 and there's a lot to say about it so first I will read Psalm 23 from uh, my friend and colleague Norman you are my shepherd I am content You lead me to rest in the sweet grasses, to lie down by the quiet waters, and I am refreshed. You lead me down the right path, the path that unwinds in the pattern of your name. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me, comforting me with your rod and your staff, showing me each step. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my adversity and moisten my head with oil. Surely my cup is overflowing and goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And in the long days beyond, I will always live within your house. Any one of those lines would be enough to talk for an hour or not talk for an hour, just sit and reflect and hold it in your heart. So I thought about three things as a starting point. I want to talk about content, and I want to talk about a table in the midst of my adversity, and I want to talk about my cup is overflowing, and see if I can do all of them.
I really want to talk about the wisdom that we hope will arise as a result of this practice. And that wisdom that leads to contentment, that leads to the feeling that we really can live in this very life, in the midst of challenge, with a peaceful heart, and to feel that that's sufficient. My cup is overflowing. The Hebrew for that is kosi rivaya, and the exact derivation of rivaya means brimming, just enough. I have just enough. I talked to a friend of mine today about it, about how about overflowing is just enough overflowing. And she said, actually, when you think about it, just enough is overflowing. The experience of not needing I want to talk about content. We're used to that first line, I think, the translation of um, I shall not want that we're reading tonight as the Lord is my shepherd, I am content. And want is an interesting word in English. You know, we think about to lack for something. He wanted for food or shelter. means he lacked it. And it doesn't, I, I don't think we're talking really about lack. I think that this meaning of the word want is want in the sense of need to have something different. And I think I shall not want, I like to interpret as I am content. That no matter what, I am content. My mind is free of the imperative to have things another way, free of craving. Doesn't mean the mind is pleased with what's happening. That was such a big step for me to discover in my own practice. That was a great revelation, actually, that I didn't need to be pleased in order to be content. That was such a freedom. Because, you know, I, I think it's normal to think if you're going to be content, well, things are all going your way. But to discover that it's a human possibility to have things not go your way and to be content, not that you suddenly decide that you like it, that you have amnesia about what you actually wanted, but that you know this is not what I wanted and my mind is not in contention with it. I do not have an adversarial mind. I have not pushed this away. I am not distancing myself from my life. I think we might actually say I'm not distancing myself from God, not distancing myself from the truth. There's not an imperative in my mind that things must be different. There's a young woman who's been studying at Spirit Rock for quite some time, comes frequently on Wednesday mornings to that class, who not so long ago was diagnosed with MS. And she's young and capable and talented and lovely and in the height of her career and this was really bad news and she says I'm more determined than ever to keep up my spiritual practice she said because I really believe that there will be a way that I can acknowledge the presence of this MS and still have a peaceful mind and the line that she particularly liked um, which she told to her father, who was a woodworker, 
who made her a great wooden carving of this particular line that now hangs in the wall of her bedroom, says, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And I heard that a very long time ago from someone who taught me, who said that really the point of practice was to develop the kind of heart that could, under any circumstance, or really a circumstance that wasn't desirable, say, well, the truth is, this wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. That that kind of ability comes not because you push away what you really wanted or pretend it's fine, but because you remember that things are the way they are because that's the way they are, that they couldn't be otherwise. That it's really a profound understanding of karma. Things are what they are because of so many myriad causes. A very close and dear friend of mine died in February of this year. It's not even two months. And one of the things that uh, we would talk about, she had... She had pancreatic cancer for which there isn't a cure and she had treatments for it and hoped to live long enough to live into a cure, but that didn't happen. And uh, so we talked a lot about that particular movement of the mind that accepts what's going on and doesn't like it. And uh, she said, you know, mostly I'm not mad at this, she said, but sometimes I am mad at the fact that I have this cancer. She said, and then I think to myself, why me? And then she said, and after a while, I think to myself, why not me? It's one of those things that happens to people. She said, you know, when I think to myself, why not me? My mind is easier. doesn't make her any happier. didn't make her any happier about having it. Actually, one of the things she said, she lived quite long. People die quite quickly, usually of pancreas cancer. <laughs> And uh, in the end, when she really began to die and there was nothing left to do for her, the doctors said, you know, you've lived 21 months, 20 months. You've made it into the 3% of people who live this long with this illness. And she said, well, truth to tell, I would have rather made it into the 1%. As a matter of fact, I would have rather made it into the no percent and not be in the whole game. It doesn't make amnesia about what you'd rather have doesn't mean you approve of it. It doesn't mean that it's okay with you. It certainly does not mean indifference. You know, sometimes uh, there's a... Uh, I have, I, one of my teachers uh, was uh, very meaningful, taught me something very meaningful. He said, when my mind gets in trouble, I think to myself, after I'm struggling with it for a while, he said, I suddenly remember that I'm struggling. And I realize, it's like this. And he had this little hand gesture that he did. It's like this. And then I'm all, then I'm all right. So I began to go. I felt so good when I heard him teach that. It was a, as if it was a direct transmission to me. So I was excited about that piece of news. So I went all around and I taught that. And I'd say to people, I think it depends on the hand gesture. You have to do it like this. So somebody said to me, teenagers say that. They say, Whatever. You know, I said, but, you know, when a teenager says, whatever, it's got a little bit of aversion in it, like, you know, it's not really friendly in it. So it's not whatever in that teenager aversion way. It's really whatever. 
You know, the last time I saw this particular teacher, I told him, you know, it's been three years since I saw you. Thank you so much. I told that whole story. So I'm going all over the whole, you know, wherever I teach. And I tell people that particular teaching about it's like this. As I make that little hand gesture, it was so meaningful to me. And he said, I did that? (laughs) (laughs) But it was so meaningful to me. So it doesn't mean indifferent. doesn't mean it's all the same to me. It certainly doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean whatever, and, you know, I can't do anything, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge does not mean that what I do doesn't matter. I'm not in charge, but everything that I do matters. And everything that everybody does matters. I feel like the, there are all of us, when people say, don't drop the ball, I think there is one giant ball, and we are all holding it up. And they were obligated to hold up that ball until the end. Because where that ball lands has to do with how everybody holds it up. So I'm convinced that this has nothing to do with passivity or with removing oneself from the world. But actually, I'm convinced the opposite. It's an active engagement on behalf of the world. Most of all, I think the ability to do that depends on knowing that discontent is what that an uh, an uh, inability of the mind to accept what's going on is the cause of suffering. The imperative that it needs to be different is what is suffering. Pain is we have lots of pains in our lives, and the pain is pain, and it becomes suffering when we can't stand it that it's there, when it becomes wrong that it's there, when it has to go away. I think the line, thy will be done, is a crucial line. And I don't think it means have it your way. And I don't think it means I capitulate. I think it means I understand that the causes of the unfolding creation are so manifold and so interconnected and so complex that who could possibly fathom what does what? And really, in awe, Thy will be done. It's all happening. And I am part of the happening. I am part of the happening, not apart from it. It's not happening to me. It's happening with me. And everything that I do is part of it. I think that, <clears throat> I think that when we think about arriving at a wisdom, I want that kind of deep wisdom where I know that things are what they are because they just are. And that the only place of possible negotiation is my own heart. And that what I'm working on is my own heart's ability to say, okay, this either is what I wanted or it isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And what will I do now? I think that there are lots of ways to arrive at wisdom that uh, classically in uh, Jungian psychology, uh, there's an outline of four different Types of people, people who uh, are intellectual, they figure things out and they study them. And the people who are devotional, who's uh, more emotional, uh, whose uh, heart connections are what helps them to feel out the world and come to some place of understanding. And the people who come to a place of understanding through connections, through serving, through working, through relating other people, other beings in the world. And then there are the intuitives, um, the people who uh, don't so much figure as wait for a revelation. And truth to tell, I think that we are all of those. And everybody's got a little bit of 
all of them. In the Hindu system, that they are uh, yana yoga, um, bhakta yoga, uh, karma yoga, and raja yoga. If I uh, were a um, a Catholic looking to become a nun in a in a monastic order, if I were an intellectual, I'd join the Jesuits. And if I were a bhakti, I'd be probably a Franciscan, I think. If I were a karma yogi, I'd uh, join uh, the Sisters of Mercy and work with Mother Teresa, or I'd become a Dominican and be a teacher or a physician. And if I were me, I'd probably be a Trappist and be in a monastery and be quiet and wait for a revelation. Thomas Merton was one of the great pillars of my own spiritual formation. And he had died by the time I found out about him. But really, his renouncing of the world and becoming a contemplative was a very powerful motivation for me to think about my own meditative practice or looking for one. Essentially, what I am interested in is developing that that kind of wisdom. It couldn't be other. This is the way it is. That sense of thy will be done without any hesitation so that I don't heart disconnect from what's going on. My own experience is that when my mind is able to accommodate the situation, then my heart is available to connect with the situation. If I haven't distanced myself... I can connect with it. I think that's what human beings do. We have this quality and capacity for connection. And that we connect in three different ways. We connect in friendship and companionship. We connect in consolation and um, compassion when circumstances are difficult. And we connect with appreciation and delight when circumstances are wonderful. So we're either being friendly with people or consoling people or applauding people. But the, the fact of connection is for me so vitally uh, a part of feeling alive in this life. When I have distanced myself and I cannot connect, then I feel isolated, I feel lonely, I despair. And I actually suffer. I don't feel good the feeling that all of those connections keep me floating somehow in this life. And I I know that when my mind is clear, that piece of wisdom, things are what they are, and you accommodate, is so clear in my mind, and it's so easy for me to forget. It's like one false move, the mind gets startled, the mind gets frightened, and then however much wisdom I thought I had is out the window, I've forgotten it. You know, um, here's a story that comes into my mind to tell you. Uh, I live in France for part of the year. I have very good fortune to be able to be able to live in France for part of the year. My husband and I have a little house in the south of France, which we uh, acquired in the last year, and which we furnished mostly from an antique store in the nearby town. When we arrived back in France, we go every three or four months and we stay for a while. When we arrived back there the last time, 
we found that the mattress that uh, had been ordered to fit the antique bed that we bought the time before had arrived, and with the mattress had come an unexpected bill for 400 euro more than the price that we had agreed on. So I phoned the uh, antiquaire, the antique dealer, and I had a telephone conversation with her in which she said, unfortunately, malheureusement, it turned out that that mattress, because it had to be made special, because beds in 1840 are narrower than now, it cost an extra 400 euro. So very sorry about that, but there it is. So now I, I was, my husband was not happy with that understanding, and uh, I needed to go back and talk to her in person and continue the discussion because he was not prepared. He said, it's not fair, it's not fair. We'll go talk to her. So we went together. He was mad. He wanted to continue the discussion. He doesn't speak French, so I had to go with him. On the way, he said, look, point out to her, we made a deal. We agreed on a price. It included the mattress. This is not fair. Tell her it's not fair. This is not what we agreed on. And I say to him, listen, uh, Madame is an 85-year-old small-town auntie care. She is not Macy's. You don't come back and say, I'm exchanging this. This is a done deal. Nevertheless, point out to her that this is very not right. It's not fair. And at least, at the very least, she could give us uh, something to make us feel better. She could give us, for instance, those nightstands that you were looking at the last time we were there <laughs> that would go on either side of the bed. Point out to her, make the case. He said, if you don't want to talk to her, I will. I'll, I'll uh, pantomime how unhappy I am. <laughs> so we go back, and I talk to her in my most polite French, and I explain all about how shocked we were, and what an upset, and after all, and we'd done so much business with them, and with her, and we were happy with everything else. And I got all finished, and I said, you know, We've always had such a... Uh, I wonder if you might think about uh, giving us uh, something to maybe compensate for the dismay that we feel because we always had such a good feeling about being with you. Meantime, I'm looking pointedly at some nightstands, <laughs> as I'm saying now. And I'm saying because, after all, we had such a good experience with you, and now we're left with really some bad feelings. Mauvaise émotion. I said, we had mauvaise émotion. So all of a sudden, Madame looked like she was really alarmed about that. And she leaned forward and she put her hands on me and she said, Oh, Madame, mauvaise émotion are very bad for you. <laughs> you should put them down. Let them go. <laughs> it's in the past, she said. Forget about it. Then she said, really, the most important, she said, these things happen. <laughs> so I also, uh, three things were clear to me as she was talking to me. One was that she was right. The second was that I wasn't going to get any nightstands. <laughs> and the third was that it was a really good story. You know, in, even as I sat there in the moment, I knew she was right. 
When you think about it, when we left, by the way, my husband said to me, so we leave, we're leaving the store. And he said, so what did she say? <laughs> I said, she more or less said, that's life, make the most of it, you know. Uh, and now we'll go look and find some nightstand somewhere else. But at that point, my mind being free from focused in on her and you know, this was wrong and it shouldn't have happened that way. I have a friend who I told the story to and I said, uh, particularly, I said, uh, he was so concerned about it, it's not fair. And she said, you know, those three words have made more trouble in the world since any other three words, since forever. It's not fair. Nothing is fair. It's not fair that this person gets this illness and that one, that one, and this one, this one, and that one, that one. I mean, there are lots of, why, why me? Why not me? Everything that she said is absolutely a piece of wisdom. The first is, mauvaise émotion really are bad for you. They're not good for you. We have all the tests now. We can do all kinds of uh, physiological tests on people to know that when their mind is caught in a torment, their blood pressure is higher, heartbeat is faster, they have more tendencies to get sick. It's not good for you to keep your mind in an uh, adversarial state. So mauvaise émotion are bad for you. You should put them down. You should. Everybody, you know, nobody purposely suffers. We would if we could. Be wonderful to be able to say, oh, mauvaise émotion, letting them go. But the, the, the next thing that she said is in the past. It is in the past, but you probably all know, if not before this week, since this morning, that things that are in the way past, when you think about them, are in the present that it doesn't matter if it happened this morning or three days ago or 20 years ago. If it's an emotionally laden event and it comes up into the mind again, it's here now. And you can feel the same feelings about it again. So it's not so in the past. It's in the past historically, but it's in the present when we remember it. And forget about it is hard. And actually... Someone asked a very good question. Someone asked this morning, and Mary answered it. It was a very important question. Um, I think maybe it was Laurie, I'm not sure, about the question about when do you go from really letting your mind really investigate something that's come up that seems really compelling, or when do you bring it back to a neutral focus to calm your mind? And Mary's answer, I think, was perfect about uh, you make a decision if you can calm you, if you can calm your mind, on behalf of later coming back to that particular issue, whatever it was, because it surely isn't going to go away. It'll come around and make a return visit pretty soon. That might be a wise thing to do. A, uh, it might be a prudent thing to do if there were retreat time and this was a, there were enough time to develop some um, uh, composure in the mind so that it could look at the issue in a fresh way. Sometimes the issue is so compelling that you need to be with it. It doesn't go away. You know, the thing about forget about it, we don't forget about things. They stay in there. And they wait. I sometimes think that there's a a way in which my heart, and that's a metaphorical heart, it's not my beating heart, has a little list of unfinished business in there. And it waits until it finds a free, free moment, like I'm sitting somewhere on a retreat, quietly minding my business, having a good time. It says, ah, 
there is Sylvia, not having anything to do with this moment. Let's just, you know, float this one by and see what you want to do with it now. And actually, I, you know, in the beginning, I, I remember going to my teachers and saying, ah, oh, I've done something wrong. Look what's here. I've finished this. I've talked about this in therapy till I'm blue in the face. I'm finished with this. But I wasn't, and it needed to come back again and again and again. There was a man um, who was on retreat once. I want to tell you this story, but I want to tell it briefly. Who I saw at the end of a seven-day retreat and hadn't seen him earlier. The other teachers had seen him through the retreat. So he told me his whole story, <clears throat> which was very compelling. I just thought of it this week. I hadn't thought of it for a while. He said, I came on a retreat. I didn't know anything about meditation. And uh, I just had this week off, and I saw that this uh, retreat was offered, and meditation is on the cover of Time magazine, so that's why I came. Um, And he said, the first night I sat down, and out of the recesses of the back of my mind, where I had locked it away for four years, came a rerun of a story that happened to me four years ago. It was so horrible, I put it away in the back of my mind. Don't even go there. And it was back the first night, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I've got seven days looming out ahead of me. What am I going to do? I thought, all right, I might as well look at it as long as I'm here. I've got all this time ahead of me. And he told a story about having been uh, held up, actually, in the middle of the night in a big metropolitan city on the East Coast by a person clearly very high on drugs and very not, um, not in a... Uh, a regular mind state who had a gun who put the gun up at his chest and said you know give me your money give me your wallet and he said you know I gave him my wallet right away even it had $700 in it but hey you know just gave him the wallet right away don't usually have that kind of money and I'm not usually in that neighborhood but I didn't hesitate I gave him the wallet put it in his pocket and then he put the gun on my chest again and he said I'm going to kill you I'm going to kill you I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He said, I was terrified. And I said to him, stop. And he stopped. And I didn't know what to do. I said, wait, wait. I have this wonderful wristwatch. I'll give you my wristwatch. He had this great wristwatch. So I took off my wristwatch and I gave it to him. And he put it in his pocket. And then he put the gun back on my chest. And he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he looked like he was revving himself up to pull the trigger. And I said to him, stop. And I didn't have anything else to give him. So I said, stop. He stopped. I said, listen to me. You did great. You did wonderful. When you go home, your friends are going to be so impressed. You know how much money there is in that wallet? There's a great deal of money in that wallet. And that watch, that's a terrific watch. It's extremely valuable. Your friends are going to be so proud of you. You did good. Now go home. (laughs) And the person turned and left. So, number one, doesn't that make your hair stand on end? I haven't thought of that story in a while. Still makes my hair stand on end. Imagine I was sitting with this man who was telling me the story. So, of course, he was alive. I was frightened to death hearing the story. Just for you. And there he is in front of me. So number one piece of the story is, always think at this point, I said to him, first of all, how did you know to say that? He said, I have no idea. He said, I was so terrified 
But that's what came out of my mouth. And I think it's so... Um, I'm reassured by the fact that you don't have to be relaxed. He certainly wasn't relaxed. But his mind was focused. And that when the mind is focused, it picks the right answer. You did good is, I think, the last piece of human communication. That's what we say to babies when they have no wiring at all. We say, oh, you did wonderful. Oh, you burped. That was great. Oh, you this. That was wonderful. That the communication that's at the root of all communications is you are acceptable to me. Everybody wants to be acceptable. You did great. You did great. And that somehow that came out from him. You did great. Go home. The second part of the story is better. That part, I think, that's really amazing. And that he is a person so confused on drugs, the only wavelength that goes through is, you did great. Ah, okay. Stops this torrent. So then the man who told me the story said, I came here, and I sat down, and I said, all right, I can't hide from the story. He said, the story replayed in my mind. Every time I sat down, I took two breaths. It was back, and in the beginning... He said, I hear the story in my mind and I would shake and shiver and I would sweat and then the next day again and again and all day long. He said, I felt like I was in a movie and it was a continual rerun of this. He said, by and by, it was like when you see a rerun so many times that you know the end, that it doesn't frighten you anymore. It's like when you have a bad dream and you tell it to somebody over and toxicity goes out of it. He said, finally, yesterday, he said, uh, I, I could sit and the whole movie would play and I'd be fine. Nothing would happen. My body was just okay. I'd just see the movie and then it was finished and I thought I was okay. He said, and this morning I was sitting and the movie played again through me. He said, and I suddenly had the thought, I was me standing where I was having my life because of the life that I had had before that. And he was him standing where he was, doing what he was doing because of the life he'd had before that. And if he had had my life and I had had his life, I would have been him doing him. And he said, in that moment, I forgave him. And then I really felt better. He said, do you think that's an insight? I said, I think so. But really, that particular insight, we are each of us who we are doing what we're doing because of everything that's ever happened. It's a great relief, you know, when I, you know, I do the best I can. If it's great, it's good. If it's not great, it's good. It's how the karma of that moment comes together and everybody else's karma of the moment coming together. It couldn't be other. There's no jumping forward to forgiveness. When the mind is injured and frightened, you can't say to yourself, I'll feel better off when I forgive, so one, two, three, forgive. You can't do it. When the mind is injured, I think, that, I think it's in pain. I think it must fall over or contract or something. It can't see around it, and the pain fills up the whole mind. I'm not a, I'm not a very... Um, I don't get very angry very easily. That's not my that's not my vulnerable place. But a couple of times in my life, I've been very angry. Um, 
for a long period of time about an offense that I felt was so grievous. Every time I thought of it, I would just feel terrible again. I was reflecting today about them, that both of those ended after some period of time, one took 10 years, another took two years, with a resumed relationship with that person. Because it's right that the relationship should have resumed. Not everybody in your life you need to have a relationship with. But these were two people that really could be in my life and I wanted my life. And what I had to wait in both of those cases, so I had to wait until the dust settled enough in my mind. Just had to wait. That patience was... Patience and trust and not making it worse. Actually, like staying away from that person, either physically or even in communication, not bringing it up. Letting the mind cool off from that so that it could, uh, if you can imagine, shrink back to its regular size and see the person in the whole context of their whole life, not just the person who did this to me, but the person in a life who was subject to causes, just like I'm a person in my life subject to causes. so important not to keep telling the story over and over again about how offended. That's why this kind of meditation practice where we rest the mind gives a chance for the mind to cool itself down and see around the edges. You know, that I, I, I realize I keep showing you that with my hands, but I have such a, a sense of spatial uh, sp- space about it. I saw new TV, two TV kind of controls we have a big television screen, and you can be watching the Army-Navy game. And over here, it's got a small box. You can do your uh, channel changer, and you can get the uh, USC Notre Dame game over here. But here's this big game. It says, say, you really want to see Army-Navy, but you want to see how USC and Notre Dame are going. You can have a, like a clipper, like a clicker on your television remote. And so you can see this little box. I think my mind is like I'm watching two TVs all the time. I'm watching the TV of Small Box of Sylvia's Life, Drama Marches On, and the big TV of creation and the world and everything. And from this box, I am seeing from Sylvia's point of view. And from this, I may be seeing from God's point of view this whole amazing story. I imagined, especially if I could get far enough away from the world and look down, we wouldn't see the little tiny stories of who offended who. We'd see maybe wars and really big, terrible things happening. But we'd also see amazing things like like this, this half is full of snow and this half is green and then this half is full of snow and this half is green. So far, to worry about that pretty soon, but so far it's like that. And this whole big ball circling around the sky, around the sun, in a, such a predictable way that you can tell where the sun will rise in 2014 on the 21st of June. You can tell when it will rise anytime, anywhere, in an amazingly predictable way. If I look at that big screen, it lifts up my heart. I think it's amazing to be part of this enterprise and to be responsible for holding up my side of the, my little piece of that ball that's life unfolding. 
If I look at this little box over here, it's a pretty small little box. I mean, it's a one story in six billion other human stories, not to speak of how many billion other being stories. But on the other hand, I'm tremendously interested in this little box, and it captivates me. And it's all right with me. I think it's normal to be captivated by our little box. And every once in a while, my box, when it frightens me or startles me, or even particularly amazes me, it fills up the whole screen. And when it fills up the whole screen for too long, I really forget that there are other possibilities. I really become caught up in myself. can't remember that there's a world. I can't remember that there's a creation. I can't remember that my heart has the capacity to connect in caring outside of myself, which really is the most gratifying feeling of all. Somehow, if I can keep both the screens going, I can have my little drama here and support it with this. You set a table for me in the middle of adversity. This is a livable life. I can sit down for a meal with the news that, that I had today that my cousin has some grievous illness, with the news of that, with the news of this, with the news of that, that we have heart enough to do that and desire enough to keep on living in a world that's full of news that's disappointing, full of things that we could say, this isn't what I wanted, but I've what I, what's what I've got. And yet there is this. I thought I would say just a minute when I was thinking about my view and God's view that um, we just finished uh, in the Torah reading cycle the book of uh, Exodus. And uh, you may remember um, in the book of Exodus that uh, there's an interchange between Moses and God where Moses says, uh, let me see you, let me see your face. <coughs> He and God are having a discussion as if to a person uh, on Mount Sinai. And God said, well, nobody can see my face and live. But if you uh, will put yourself in the cleft in this rock, I'll pass behind you and you'll feel me and know my name as I pass. So it's Exodus 34 and 33 and 34, if you want to look it up when you get home. Um, and the, the Spirit of God passes by and the attributes of God are revealed as God's name, patience and um, kindness and compassion, slow to anger, forgiveness. It's one of my very favorite parts. One of the things that I like to think about is... Uh, the idea of God passing behind. And so that means I am not seeing God, but I'm seeing the world as God might see it. If God passes behind me, we're both looking in the same direction. And what would I see? And could I really see, not the, the stories that are so often troubling, but the amazement of creation, the fact of creation? And could I see it enough to have it sustain my mind and lift my heart in the middle of my adversity. Um, 
this morning, Norman said when he was giving the instructions, he said, uh, the mind is resting. It's a place of thanks and praise. That's a liturgy line. Uh, Let's give thanks and praise. It is right to give thanks and praise. It's the um, beginning line of several psalms. Praise God who is good. God's goodness uh, endures forever. I think about that when I find myself in a community uh, and everybody's singing that psalm and I look around and I think there's that person singing the psalm and I know that um, her partner is sick and there's that other person I know that his child is not doing well and there's that other person who I know personally is having a struggle and yet we are all singing about the greatness of being alive in this world. And I think, well, for me, that's such a suggestion about not what's happening to me is desirable. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And I'm still glad I'm here having this life. Is a possibility for human beings. As a community, we get up as a group and we look around. And the fact that I can look around and know in the groups that I sit with, here in my synagogue community, wherever, everybody's got their stuff. And yet we can stand up and say, you know, it's great that we're alive. There's a... a, a I heard a, a, a... I heard Václav Havel some couple of years ago now, because I've really been taken with this phrase, saying that the definition of hope was being able to say no to what was exactly in front of you. And I thought, well, that's an odd thing to say because we're really talking all the time about telling the truth and naming what's exactly in front of you. And what he said is, I don't mean, no, this isn't happening. I mean, no, this is not the only thing that's happening. It's another version of the television screen that if I back up from this, which seems so overwhelming... And I remember, you know, there's a world and a whole cosmos around this. If I read the morning newspapers, which I do all the time, sometimes you think, this is impossible. And you have to do something to make your mind back in a place where it says, this is happening. And it's a beautiful world, and it's amazing to be a person with the potential of changing what happens on this planet, that we could make a difference. I think everybody's liturgy says, purify my heart so that I can truly serve. You have to be able to back up enough to get a grasp on your heart. Say, okay, I think there are two things that we are called upon to see, that I am called upon to see. If I remember, if I see how much suffering there is in the world, I'll be moved to do something about it. If I only see the suffering, I'll be overwhelmed. If I see how amazing the world is. I'll be able to stand the suffering and I'll be moved to do something about it. I thought I would read to you uh, a piece from the spiritual journal of um, a Hasidic rabbi. This man's name was Kalanimus Kalman Shapira. He died in the Wausau ghetto. And he kept a, a journal he, he wrote a book uh, about his spiritual community, 
which really, if you read it uh, past the parochial fact that it was a community of Orthodox Jews, and see that they are doing the same work of purifying the heart that we are in any of our communities. He also um, kept this journal and uh, apparently hid it um, under the ground, under some stones, uh, because that's written in the foreword of this book, before the Warsaw Ghetto was overcome and before he died. So the foreword of this book uh, is a reproduction of him saying, of the letter that he says, if anybody finds these papers ever, please send them to my brother in Jerusalem and gives the address. And so somebody decades later found them. And uh, so somewhere in the last 10 years, this has been translated. And uh, I'll read it to you. And this is a, a, a Rebbe in the Warsaw Ghetto. It could be, we could tell this story about anybody in any lineage who remembers that there's a way to step back from what's right in front and we remember what's right around what's in front. So this is written on, um, on Saturday night after the closing of the Sabbath, after the dark. And it's a journal entry. In 1929, I am exhausted from talking to people about God. I am constantly trying to convey how God is so imminent right in front of us, even within us, in our thoughts and our actions. God fills our entire outer and inner worlds, our deepest recesses, and all our life experiences. But all people see is the earthly world, and they bury their heads in it with their entire beings. If only they would listen to my cries, follow the voice of God in all your physical and spiritual actions, your entire life is in God's presence. But they've blinded themselves with their physical perceptions, and their hearts sense nothing beyond their physical senses. My throat is hoarse. Fresh ideas about how to convey these tr truths are not forthcoming. The sharp insights I've had in the past are dimming. I feel about to fall into depression. God help me. When I left the Friday night table, the Sabbath table last night, I gave up. No one had been listening anyway. So I began to talk to the universe. I opened my window and I saw an entire world just waiting for someone to acknowledge its beauty. And then it was about time to recite bedtime prayers. So I spoke to the world and I cried out to it, God is one. And I continued reciting. These are lines from the nighttime prayer. Enlighten the world with your glory. Blessed be God by day, blessed be God by night. When God came into being through God's will, God was the ultimate. The entire creation seemed to be taking in each holy word and thought as I expressed it. I became greatly encouraged and all my insights and feelings returned to me. Now, whether I am by myself or with people, whether or not anyone is listening, I speak instead to the world, to God's world rather than to people. And when the world itself will reveal its holiness, Perhaps then also its inhabitants will become hallowed with it. And then from the far corners of the earth, everyone will be singing songs to God. I think what we are doing here is trying to 
wait here quietly to step back from our story and see a bigger screen so we can say, oh yes, and oh yes, my heart is still here and I can still connect. I think we'd have to do all the jobs of healing the stuff that the heart says. You want to think about this, Sylvia, remember that? You don't have to do it all in one day and you don't have to do it all in one retreat. And besides, if you did it all, there'd just be new stuff to do the next time. So you don't finish. But I actually think we're not supposed to finish. I think this is the job that's the whole life. It's enough time to say in one more minute that the whole of the, st- the, the story of uh, the second, third, fourth, and fifth books of the Hebrew Bible, which everybody has as part of their scripture here, the whole of the story from the slavery in Egypt to the arriving in the view of the Promised Land is, I think, a very long metaphor for how it is in our lives. That uh, the journey itself, geographically, should not have taken 40 years. They wander and wander and wander and wander and wander. I think the journey, I think it's meant to say that the journey from here to resting content in the life doesn't happen so easy. There's challenges and challenges and challenges and challenges. You set a table for me in the midst of my adversity. The challenges are not a mistake. They're actually, I think, but, um, what conditions the heart and the material for learning. And the story literally is the going out from Egypt and arriving in the Holy Land. And the word in Hebrew for Egypt is uh, Mitzrayim, which literally means a narrow place, a place that's constricted. And my mind gets stuck in narrow places all the time. I I figure historically, if it's true, that story, and not just a legend, there was one going out from Egypt. I go out from Egypt about 10 times a day, maybe more, maybe some days if I'm lucky, less. But I keep going back into Egypt every time I decide that I don't like something or it's got to be different. Really, not that I don't like it, but that it's got to be different. Because it can't be different. It's what it is. It's like this. Every time I decide, it's a deluded thought. It has to be different. It should be different. It's not fair. Those are deluded thoughts. It shouldn't be different. It's what it is for every reason of this is a lawful cosmos. It's not capricious. I think that's actually worthy of thanks and praise. It's not capricious. Things happen for reasons. Not necessarily personal to me, all of them, but also even any of them. But they happen. So I am thinking that the trip takes so long because we just make it, I just make it out from Egypt and I'm right back again and again and again. So I'm trying to get, actually, I don't actually know if it's a distance that has to be covered or a habit of staying out. Uh oh. I'm about to jump back into uh, Egypt now if I continue this line of thought. Maybe I'd better not. So it's like Monopoly where it says, go directly to jail, do not pass go. And I start to have a thought that's a resentful thought just for that. I really know that I'm on my way back to Egypt just for that. Because it means I am hatching some recrimination just for that. So I am actually working on what are the roadmaps for not going back to Egypt. So maybe we all get out of Egypt soon. 
the prayer line that you say when you want to say that is speedily and in our time to which we can all say Amen. <laughs> Let's just sit for one minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 3, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.